So I was going to this new high school, this all girls high school, and we had this new freshman orientation and I didn't know a soul there. And so I was getting ready for it. And I was putting on my like khaki shorts and my like olive green polo shirt. Cause that's what I wore at the time. And I decided that I was going to give myself a bit of a, you know, haircut. My bangs were a little too long and I made the mistake of doing this and they were wet, which you never do that because they do this little like thing where they shrink up a bit. And so I walked into that room with a brand new haircut in front of 140 other 130 of my classmates who are all wearing beautiful sundresses as I walk in with my khaki shorts, my new haircut and my olive green polo. I was like, oh, this is not the first impression I wanted to make. <laughs> Welcome to TNT with Teresa Quinlan and Reese Thomas. We are friends from across the pond on a life evolution. We want to bring you topics that challenge your status quo guests that help you think differently and nuggets of wisdom that spark being being what you authentic you today we welcome rachel druckenmiller ceo speaker facilitator at unmuted Rachel is on a mission to humanize the workplace by igniting resilient, connected, and engaged leaders and teams through interactive keynotes, workshops, and leadership training. Uh, recognized as the number one health promotion professional in the US in 2015, a 40 under 40 game changer in 2019, and one of the daily records leading women of 2020. Rachel is a national thought leader in the field of well being and employee engagement. Uh, she's delivered over 100 virtual learning experiences since March 2020 across a wide range of industries. She has worked with dozens of organizations, including Deloitte, Citizen Bank, Junior Achievement and the American Heart Association. She's been featured as a guest on more than 50 podcasts. She has a master's degree in health science and a bachelor's degree in psychology. You know, this is going to be a good one, folks. Please help me welcome Rachel Druckenmiller to the show. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much. Yay, so happy uh, to have you. In a, a change to our usual introduction, we would like to begin this episode with a song. So, Rachel, what song is on your heart today? <laughs> well, the song that I feel like has been the anthem of the past year of my life is I'm Still Standing. I love, we just rewatched Rocket Man, which is an awesome movie. Yeah. I'll do a, a little bit of the front end of this one. Yeah. <laughs> don't you know i'm still standing better than i ever did looking like a true survivor feeling like a little kid you know i'm still standing after all this time picking up the pieces of my life without you on my mind i'm still standing yeah 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 <laughs> there we go amazing <laughs> Especially, uh, I know, you know, the story uh, of what happened to you last year would have been, wasn't it? So I'm sure it has an extra special meaning for you. Thank you so much for sharing that. We all know and love your wonderful singing talent. So as we usually do, we talk about, you know, your obsession, your passion in a good way. Tell us about this important word for you, this unmuted, you know, where it comes from, why it's your passion and how you are helping others realize it. Well, you know, I think it's something that's been with me for a long time, even like generationally. I mean, I feel like I, in my family, there were people that were, that felt silenced, that didn't feel like they could speak up, you know, whether it was a result of a, you know, a relationship that 
that my grandparents had where they, my grandmother felt like she was silenced and didn't really have a voice, but they also loved singing, you know, and I grew up in an environment where I was very shy and quiet as a kid and, and very compliant did what was expected of me. It was the good, good little girl. But in the midst of that, my parents were going through some tough stuff in their marriage and I just internalized all of that. And so I silenced the emotional pain that I had in the midst of that and not fitting in going to Catholic school for 12 years. I wasn't Catholic. So I always felt like I didn't quite fit. And so that was a challenge and, and very painful to not feel like I belonged. And so the, one of the things that brought me joy was singing, but I was so self-conscious about it and not comfortable sharing that vulnerably with people that I didn't even let myself access aside from being in a room by myself, singing alone, <laughs> I didn't really let myself access that thing that brought me joy. And so my body responded with different health issues growing up, lots of ear, nose, and throat infections. I had acid reflux. So I had like a fire in my belly that was like trying to come out in some way for 10 years. And I took medicine for it. And, and then I burned out four years ago and got mono. And so I just had this experience over time of, of silencing my body, of silencing my voice, of silencing the pain that I was going through emotionally or physically, and even silencing my passion and desire to follow my parents' entrepreneurial footsteps and, and start my own business. And so I was in a job where I had a lot of opportunity, but I wasn't fully myself. I wasn't fully able to be all that I knew I had the capacity to be. And so it wasn't until the fall of 2019 that I just decided, you know what, it's time. Not knowing what was going to be coming seven months later with the lockdown to COVID, but I decided that I was going to take a risk and that I was going to leave and start my own thing. And and do what I wanted to do the way that I wanted to do it. So, you know, it's been a journey over time of me being more intentional about stepping into the thing that I love to do about me finding my voice and using it, whether it's singing on LinkedIn or in a keynote, or just in a way that I now feel free about that. I've had folks on LinkedIn say, Hey, I love dancing. And when I saw your singing video, it made me realize if she can sing on LinkedIn, I can dance on LinkedIn. So she's like, I started sharing me videos of me dancing and I clients told me how much it made them connect to me as a human. So thanks for that. So just, I'm, I'm finding that the more honest I am about where I've struggled and how I've silenced myself, that, that everyone has their own version of doing that. Everyone has their own version of silencing a joy or silencing pain or silencing fear out of fear, out of fear of rejection, failure, judgment embarrassment. We all connect to some way that we've, you know, muted ourselves. I'd love to hear even from you two also of ways that maybe you've muted yourselves and ways that you've felt <laughs> that you've I'm laughing. I'm, I'm laughing because I'm shaking my head. No, I'm like, no, most of the time I was told, stop talking like that. Stop being so big. Stop saying what you're going to be. Stop, stop, stop. Right. Mostly that was that I didn't usually have that problem with muting myself or shrinking. Hmm. I agree. I think it was more a case of, you know, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't do these things. You know, it's kind of a, a strict authoritarian sort of parenting environment, which, you know, is only uh, an offshoot of what they experience, I'm sure. So there's no, no, no judgment or anything there. But I think that's probably what led me to start this true self thing, which I guess in a way is quite similar to your unmuted thing is finding that real authenticness. And, you know, I do stuff with the in a child healing kind of thing that's something that we can all mm -hmm. connect to uh, and I think it's a good place to start from and I think kind of working around curiosity and, and creativity and um, being in that place of no fear basically you know 
I'm, I'm lucky to have a just about to be three years old daughter. So I've spent a lot of time over that over the last two years just being a stay at home dad with her. And it's taught me so much. You know, I was supposed to be teaching her, but really, uh, you know, she was she was uh, unconsciously, subconsciously telling me all of these things and reminding me all of these things that I had uh, forgotten and, and waking mm. myself up to to my true self. So, yeah, I think there's a lot mm. of a uh, lot of synergy there between that unmuted and, and the true self thing. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I have two questions. So one, you'd mentioned, you know, taking the risk to step into the entrepreneurial space and owning what it is that I wanted to own. Oftentimes we qualify that as a risk because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. So it feels risky. The impact can be very big to our life. So looking back, would you still define it as a risk? No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't look looking back. It was more of a risk to stay in a place where I wasn't myself. Like that was a greater risk for me to, to your point, shrink. It was a greater risk for me to shrink than it was for me to step out. And someone said today, like, gosh, if you'd known that seven months into launching a business that 80% of, you know, as a full, as an in-person speaker, 80% of your work would like vanish in a matter of weeks, then you'd get hit by a pickup truck and fracture your back. Would you still have left? Good thing. We don't know everything that's going to happen in the future before we make decisions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the second part, you mentioned something so interesting between the physical manifestation of the pain you were experiencing in your childhood. And then your education is in health science and psychology. Mm -hmm. It's a combination of the physical nature of the body and its relationship to how we think and what we believe and how our brain works. And I'm just wondering, that is just too perfect to be true. Perhaps do you think a part of you knew it's what you needed? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I forget when she said it, but I remembered hearing Robin Roberts say this several years ago, of like, make your mess, your message. And it's kind of like, I don't just this idea that whatever the pain is that we go through in the midst of our own healing process of working through that, we gain insight and we learn things that we're like, gosh, this doesn't have to be in vain. Like all, all the, like the pain doesn't have to be in vain. You know, we can look back and say, Hmm, there was some type of purpose to this. And that I, it's funny, someone actually said something to me, a former coworker brought me like a gift to check in on me two weeks after this accident happened back in May. And she said, I'm not really sure how to say this. Don't take this the wrong way. But, um, you know, I thought to myself, if this was going to happen to anyone, at least Rachel's going to do something with it. (laughs) I was like, thank you. (laughs) But it's like that, like I, another friend of mine said, used a phrase several years ago that I've held on to. And she's like, you're a contender for breakthrough in all areas of your life. And I was like, that's what I feel this is. I feel like, and it's still, I'm in therapy. That's hard. I'm in somatic therapy right now, working, doing mind body integration and, and dealing with a lot of, you know, I cry just about every single week because there's, there's pain, but there's also healing that's happening in the midst of it. And I don't know any other way to be other than to dig into this stuff. Like I'm here for a limited amount of time. I want to make the most of it. I want to learn as much as I can about, about myself and about other people and about how healing happens. And I think it's very intentional. I see the work I do as, as healing work. And so as someone who knows what it is to feel sick and to be sick and to be injured mentally, physically, emotionally, it feels very gratifying, validating to be doing work 
that can support people going through similar things or their own version of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, so two things for me as well. Number one, you describe the journey you've been on, the corporate lifestyle you have, the new experience, this unmuted. And I'm interested because I'm sure lots of people have been in a similar situation of thinking, you know, everything's changing. Should I just hold on to the riverbank and, 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 and stick with what I'm doing or should I just let go and, and just let go with the flow? So this unmuted thing, is it something that you did gradually and you recognize and are aware of it and intentionally while still in a corporate bubble? Or was mm-hmm. it just like, boom, here I go, coming out kind of unmuted, here we are, or was it gradual? Well, that's a good, it feels like, you know, it's like, I'm coming out, you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> soon I talk, like we think it's on there. It was gradual. Cause someone's like, when did you become unmuted? I'm like, mm, over 25 years. I feel like it started like in, when I was in high school, I went to this all girls high school and we had this summer reading program that was atrocious. We had to read like six books every summer. And then we had this terrible test, the start of the school year that everyone freaked out. They just read the cliff notes because it was too much to read and remember. It made everyone hate reading. And I grew up loving reading and I hated reading because of these books we had to read. It was like 3000 pages worth of stuff. Like, um, it was a lot and people complained about it every year. No one did anything. And I was like, well, why don't I do something? So I wrote a proposal. (laughs) I was 15. I wrote a proposal to the heads of the English and history departments about why we should change the summer reading program and exactly my recommendations on how I thought it needed to change. <laughs> and I met with them by myself, the heads of the English and history departments. And I was like, here's what I think that we should do. And they actually, they dropped one of the books. They made changes to how they prepare people for the, the exams at the end of the year. They gave you a study guide over the summer. Like I saw a 15 that I could speak up and advocate for something and that things changed. At the same time that's happening, juxtapose that with, I love singing and I avoided singing in the choir, joining the choir all four years I was in high school because you had to sing a solo in order to audition to get into it. So it was like in one area of my life, I felt like I was unmuted and speaking up and advocating and another area where I actually felt an immense amount of joy when I was alone, I silenced that a catalyst for me was I lived in Spain. I lived in Southern Spain for a semester in college. And that culture is vibrant and alive and colorful and animated and expressive. And I came back from that. And that's when I tried out for my first solo for gospel choir in college. And then from there, I had a solo every semester after and singing is how my husband and I connected. And so it was this, you know, kind of like the snowball effectively, you do one thing and then that leads to maybe I'll, maybe I'll also get away from my pastel colors and grab that hot pink blazer. And maybe, you know, maybe I'll ask for a compensation adjustment at work. It's like that confidence is the byproduct of action kind of thing that like the more we take these steps. You're stacking proof. Yes. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Leads yes. to the next action. Mm-hmm. I love the second part of that story. And I'm kind of visualizing you and the, the answer to my question is like this sort of the dial on the thing. And it's just slowly, slowly, slowly being turned up to 10 or 11 or whatever and then I think you know that lesson you just shared with us there is probably more valuable than (laughs) so many lessons that everyone's learned in their school the idea that you can broach a subject with any sort of level of authority and have that confidence and and must have been hugely transformative for you at such a young age um so number two quite tied into what you just said there regarding the engagement of the school so the two things that you said that you were kind of an expert in or things that you help people with is it's well-being which i think we kind of touched on already with all of the, the links with the psychology and, and the healthcare the other one is employee engagement and i'm seeing a bit of a synergy there between this idea that you and your 15 year old schoolmates going oh i'm not really engaged with this 
boring reading syllabus how can we adapt this so it's a subject that's really important but not if i'm remember rightly one that we really covered on on the show in boring engagement so i'm wondering we kind of figured out that this well-being thing comes from your own experience does the employee engagement thing also come from your own experience and and how does that play out in, in the work that you do yeah so first of all i i love how intuitive both of you are and how thoughtful you are in the questions you ask thank you it, it takes that's a skill people don't realize that's a that's a skill so it is connected and here's where it really came from i noticed in the industry so i started in the well-being industry in 2007 and i noticed that so much of the focus was around know your numbers biometric screenings flu shots drink water 10,000 steps it was so prescriptive this cannot be all that well-being is like there am i missing something like every conversation i'd have i'd be like how do we get people to do this and how do we get people to do that and i was like i just don't think we're asking the right question like this doesn't seem to be what is going to be effective and so i started to realize that you know what people aren't inherently not doing these things because they're just so lazy and they don't care it's just that for so many people wellness programs and i ran them are an apology for what work has become. It's like, we have to do things to offer people some type of relief because work sucks so much for so many people and their, their managers have no skill in how to effectively lead people or facilitate conversation or facilitate growth. And they haven't done their own work. And again, this is just human beings in general, not to beat up on managers. It's just most human beings haven't done the work to, to find their own healing and to pursue their own growth and self-aware, all the things you talk about, you know, on emotional intelligence. And so I basically just felt like the most of what was being talked about in the name of wellness was so shallow and surface. And that got me to be more curious about, we've got to dig deeper into organizational culture. And what is it that contributes most to whether or not people are engaged? And it's, you know, do I have opportunities to grow and learn here? And do I have a sense of community? Do I feel like I belong? Does this organization stand for more than just making money? And do I feel connected to that? And like, I'm contributing to that. So I started to, to and learn about managers and their role in engagement that, you know, managers contribute to 70% of the variance and employee engagement scores. And so I just started to curious, you know, curiosity is one of my um, top values. And I was like, I, I just wanted to understand it more and understand what was beneath the surface of what so many people were doing in the name of wellness. That is awesome. I want to pick up on the word no, just for a heartbeat or two. When you ask for what you want, you give the opportunity for someone else to say yes. Mm -hmm. And the fear of the no is oftentimes what prevents us from asking for what it is that we want or going in with, maybe if I ask it this way, they'll say yes to it. So I'm not going to really ask for hundred percent of what I want. I'm just going to ask for a version of it, make mm -hmm. it easier for them to say, quote unquote, yes. Mm -hmm. When sometimes I feel fear around no is that it becomes this concrete, absolutely no, never, can, never, won't ever, when actually no can often mean not that way, mm -hmm. not right now, not with me, not by you, <laughs> not here, not exactly like that. So I think part of the unmuting is mm -hmm. being able to recognize and be comfortable with the emotional state of fear. And I would love to hear how often in your work you encounter fear as the barrier, one of the barriers, 
and then mm -hmm. how you navigate people through that. Mm. Specific to anything in particular, fear related anything. to apply anything. it wherever it goes because it goes everywhere. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think I, I think more than shows up with fear for me is self doubt shows up more than fear. Gosh, I, am I worth what I'm asking for? Are they really going to say yes? Right? Maybe that's a form of fear, I guess, depending on how we frame it. Mm -hmm. I think of a situation that happened when I worked for somebody else, and my dad would always tell me, "Hey, honey, like." the worst they'll say is no. And then you'll be no worse off than you were before. But if you don't ask, like, you don't know if you could end up with a yes. And so I remember when I was like 25 years old, I had go into our CFO because I wanted a, what my dad said, you never call it a raise. It's a compensation adjustment to more accurately reflect your enhanced value. It is not a raise. <laughs> so I would go in there, all my ducks in a row, like all the things I'd done, feedback from clients, all that kind of stuff. And he used to train people in negotiation. And so he would train me how to negotiate at like 26 years old. <laughs> and so I'd go in there with my number, with my ass, you know, and I'd say, Hey, so, um, you know, I'm really grateful. So I'm really grateful for all the opportunities I have to, to work here and to do the work that I love. And thank you for all the ways you've been supported. And, you know, I wanted to have a conversation with you about how we might adjust my compensation to more accurately reflect my increased value and contributions here. You're like sort of scared. <laughs> When you're saying that alone the first time, especially, and then you pitch the number and you say, so based on what my contributions are and how I see my future growth, this is the number that I feel like reflects that. Is that possible here? And then zip your lip and sit on your hands and you wait until they say something. I never got like a no. Sometimes it was a, um, that should be possible. It might be like six months. Okay. But so I got practice coming into a situation where I was like, I don't know what they're going to say, mm -hmm. but I feel legitimate in asking. And I started to prove to your point that, that like stacking proof by doing that incrementally over time, I didn't do it like one time, right? I did that like six times. Mm -hmm. And so by building on that over time, I, I was a little more emboldened each time I'd go in. Cause I'm like, all right, that process seemed to work. I'm more confident that I'm going to get a yes this time. And eventually when I got to kind of the ultimate note, that was part of my catalyst to be like, well, if this isn't going to be possible here, I'm going to make it possible on my own. What you mentioned here is so, I think, critical for our listeners to pay attention to is in order to do something like this, to unmute and ask for what it is you really want, we have to get to the underlying self-doubt issues and you have to work on those. So we have to essentially build our self-regard, our confidence, our inner feelings of esteem, value, worth, all of those types of things. And then what ends up happening is the language you use with that growth in self-confidence is incredibly different than the language you use when you don't have that level of confidence. So when you step into asking for an adjustment to your compensation to reflect your <laughs> true value, oh my God, I love that phrasing. That in and of itself is language that's different than before you'd be like, I'd like to ask for a raise. Very different language there. When you present, this is my worth and value before you'd say, I'd really like, because I think I'm worth this. I think instead of, I know <laughs> the language becomes so much more different that to the ears that are listening, the response has to be different because what they hear is different. They hear someone who actually believes in it and someone who's doing it because they think they're supposed to do it. Well, guess what? I could say no to that one in a heartbeat yes. because they don't even really believe that, that they're worth it. So I don't believe they're worth it. Why would I ever give someone a raise like that? 
Well, another example, I had a friend that was talking to me. She had just had a baby and her husband was due for some type of a adjustment of a compensation. And she said, well, you know, we're having, we want to have another baby. And so who's going to go in and say, Hey, we have a family. I'm like, no, you do not. <laughs> you People do not give you money because you have a family and they feel sorry for you. Like, no, no, no. You have him get all his ducks in a row to demonstrate what he has contributed, how he's helped make them money, save them money, make something more efficient, solve a problem, meet a need. You have him focus on that to qualify what he's asking for. You do not bring in the fact that you want to have a second child and that you need more money because like people just, <laughs> stuff like that happens all the time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You got to focus on what's in it for them. You're enhancing their business. They can find reasons to find more compensation. Trying to picture your uh, CFO. I love that you like, <laughs> you don't just go to like the man, you go straight to the top. You're like, I go to the headmasteress and just uh, discuss about this change of the, the books. And I go to the CFO to discuss about uh, a compensation adjustment. I love it. And also the question about the no, it reminded me of like basic sales 101 training is like, yes, lives in the land of no. And no is a million miles away from never. So that you've got all this amount of room that you can to, to work with wiggle room. I know what an expert and superstar you are in the whole virtual facilitation learning experience, which I'm sure everyone who's listening to this right now is completely on board with now. Mm -hmm. um, so as, as an expert, I wonder if you could share some of your stories. You, you alluded to some of the things that you've learned, something that our listeners can take away and uh, maybe put into practice if they're facilitators or if they're just getting a bit of Zoom fatigue and need a bit of a pick-me-up or something like that. Yeah. Well, one of the first things I do to reduce Zoom fatigue is I started doing this about, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago is I always shut off my self view. I hide my self view on Zoom so that, because if we're on the screen, we look at ourselves, like we're not because there's anything inherently wrong with us, but we're naturally more inclined to want to know what's going on in our own world. So I hide my self view so I don't see myself. Um, and then I find I'm more present and less distracted when I'm on these conversations, but what I've, what I've learned and, and why people are often coming to me for support with their organizations or associations or teams is they're like, people are just feeling really disconnected. They're feeling really disengaged. They're struggling with morale and they miss each other. Like they miss each other. And we haven't really found ways to make this effective. And I have people come to me, Hey, can you just do like a 30 minute keynote? And I do those. And I still have fun doing those. But I often ask like, well, what's your goal? Like, would you like to have people come together and have conversation and learn from each other and connect with each other? Well, yeah, yeah, we'd like that. Okay, well, if that's your goal, I can do a really awesome 30-minute keynote and get everyone energized and ready to go, but it'll be more effective if we move them in and out of some breakout experiences around some content that's central to you. And so I was doing some work with a professional services firm two weeks ago, and, and there are often certain industries like engineering or accounting or scientific research where you've got really like heady, left-brained, introspective, often cynical, and they tell me this about themselves, professions that they're a little skeptical of like, mm, is this going to be really touchy-feely and what are you going to have us do? And are we going to have to like share our feelings? And what's really helpful, one in the process is, is just in the planning stage of it, really understanding who you're going to be in front of and, and, and really getting clear on what have they already done that's worked? What are like your no fly zones? So that before you even get into it, you're, you're understanding what people are, you know, expecting. And then to ask generative questions, you know, so to bring people into conversations and ask them to share, you know, what's a way that you've adapted 
in the past year that you're proud of because everyone's done something. And the cool thing that happened was we sent folks into a small group together, you know, three people in the group, we brought them back into the main room and, you know, I always open it up and give people the option, never put people on the spot, which generally eases their anxiety, um, opened it up. And the first person who raised her hand to share, I had shared a chart on the, the grief process, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's grief process. And I had talked about, you know, the, how we get to frustration and then we get to like this depression. And she, she said, you know, I really appreciated being in that conversation because it made me realize like, I'm not the only one going through the kind of stuff I'm going through. She said, you know, I, I feel like I'm on that depression. Like I'm in that dot right now. First person to share in the whole group, almost 70 people. She shared that the chat was flooded with people were like, Oh, like we love you. We're here for you. We support you. HR team told me afterwards that a bunch of people had emailed them say, what can we do to support this person? What can we do? Like, is she okay? What does she need from us? And so it just opened up. It's like this domino effect of asking a question that gives people an opportunity to reflect on a shared experience that people may have different. Everyone had a different experience of 2020, but everyone's life was disrupted in some way. And so bringing them together to talk about that and to share, and then, and then just presenting the invitation for them to bring their voices and to share with their colleagues. It was, it was just amazing to see that. Another group last week, we were on a larger call that didn't have breakout rooms because it was maybe 250 people or so. And somebody opened up in the chat that she heard the battle with cancer that she's had and messaged me afterwards and said, 90% of my colleagues did not know that I've been battling cancer for the past year. And it was such a relief and a release just to open up about that. And the number of people that were just like, oh my gosh, thank you for sharing that. We're like, just that people have this deep desire. I know both of you know this so well to connect and to be seen and to feel seen. And it's up to us to create the conditions in which that's possible for people. So I've been really gratified and, and, and feel immensely grateful to be in these conversations with all different kinds of people that everyone assumes they're not gonna share. Nobody's gonna open up. No one's gonna participate. That's your job as the facilitator is to create the space, to know the group enough and to present the types of questions that don't feel threatening, but feel inviting. Mm -hmm. You just shared so many nuggets of how to go about starting the process. So if our listeners need to just rewind, maybe the last minute to be able to pick up again and listen through and hear the words of share an experience, ask a question, invite discussion, facilitate an experience which means you don't have to be responsible for it you simply have to set the stage for it put a place setting down and see who comes to have a bite and I think that's just a really beautiful invitation because we can as Reese described earlier tweak the dial just a little bit on our road to turning it up to 11 hello this is spinal tap and that might eventually take us all the way to the fullest expression of who we are. I mean, everyone truly does want to be, I just want to be me. How many times do we hear that expression? I just want to be me. Well, go right ahead. Like do it. You have full on permission. The only thing that is stopping you is likely you. Yeah. So turn the dial and let's see what happens from that. That's really brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of the stories, the amazing shares, your own learning, your experiences, how you're, you know, changing the world. So how can 
everybody get in touch with you, Rachel, because they're going to want more. Well, I would say a place we connected initially was on LinkedIn. So that's where I'm most active, whether it's singing or sharing something. Um, so LinkedIn would be the most prevalent place. And then my website is unmutedlife.com. So I have other blog posts and information about my work and different um, podcast conversations where this, this will be living there. And then Instagram is I'm at unmuted life. Wonderful. Thank you. So we like to wrap up with some fun in our rapid fire Q and a, are you ready? I am ready to go. And you can sing your answers if you'd like. (laughs) Question one, (laughs) which emotion catches you off guard most often? Catches me off guard. Gosh, that's a great question catches me off guard, maybe sadness, because I feel like sometimes I don't realize that's what I'm feeling in the moment. And I have to like, really let myself go into it for, Oh, you're sad. Like that's, what's underneath of it. So maybe it's sadness. Mm, Lovely. So what do you do to regulate that emotion when you've recognized it? One of the primary ways I do it, as I reach out to a friend, I sort of have my people on my phone that I'm like, I know that when I call this person, every time I call them, I'm, I feel heard. And I feel connected. And so that's one of the primary things I do is who can be, who can be a resource right now for me. Beautiful Um, support from the tribe. Love it. Number three, what's next in your personal evolution? My personal evolution is owning my identity as a singer and really, really seeing wherever that goes. And my husband's also learning guitar at the same time I'm doing singing. So maybe there'll be something coming up in the future. We'll see. Okay, two to go. When your best friend is having a meltdown, what do you say? Tell me more. And finally, in this moment, what are you most looking forward to or most hopeful for? Mm, In this moment. I'm most hopeful for all the doors that are like waiting to be opened that I don't even know exist. That's a brilliant answer. I love that. Let's end today's episode in a Rachel Druckenmiller fashion. (laughs) Would you share an appreciation of this experience? Oh, yeah. So what I appreciate most about this experience is the synergy between the two of you and how intuitively you guide a conversation and pick up on nuance in a way that very few people that do this kind of work do so seamlessly. So that's what I appreciate. Oh, high five. High five BFF. Yes. Thank, thank you. you so much. Reese, how about you? I really enjoyed getting to know a bit more about your story. I really see the synergy between the two of us in terms of this unmuted and this true self thing. I loved all the anecdotes. I love the stories. I'm picturing what it must have been like to be uh, growing up with, with your dad, this entrepreneur who's like feeding you all this stuff and telling you these things. And we're like, wow, that must have been fantastic from a from a you know rather stoical father of myself <laughs> to have that kind of different thing. And there was one quote that's came out, I'm not saying it's you, but wellness programs are an apology for what work has become <laughs> that's brilliant i love that so thank you <laughs> you're welcome Teresa? so true yes my appreciation is absolutely your complete open book willingness to share to speak the truth to be able to say hey look i know i'm not the only one so let's just talk about it because it's so much easier when we put it on the table and talk about it because that's how we move through it maybe one of the things I felt most in your share 
is around this premise of we heal through our pain. We have to go through it. We have to traverse through it. And the way to traverse through it is to acknowledge it, to speak of it, to engage other people in it because other people are experiencing the same thing. So I think that was just brilliant. Thank you so much. Yes. Oh, I want to hug you both. <laughs> Ooh, virtual hugs. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. That was special. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of TNT. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review. And when you're ready for your personal evolution, check out Reese at trueselfcoaching.com. And for your emotional intelligence revolution, check out Teresa at iqeqtq.com.